I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Okay. Christmas time. Christmas time. Well, for, for us, Christmas time. For other people, maybe generic holiday time. That's true. Holiday time. Um, Hanukkah. Next year, Hanukkah and Christmas are in like the same week, I think, which is always a fun time, I think. Yeah. For those really families that celebrate both, you can kind of just like <laughs> put it all together. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're we're technically, we're recording this, I think, either on the last night of Hanukkah or the night subsequent to the last night of Hanukkah, but to nice. be put during the Christmas season. So we're trying to cover as many bases as we can this week. True. Uh-huh. I have a non-denominational story today, so I think we'll be... We'll be good Great. with all listeners of different faiths, hopefully. Whatever you celebrate, happy holidays to you. Indeed. I apologize in advance. Mm-hmm. I went hard on the Christmas end of things for this week. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's also generally about American culture at large. So there'll be interesting things mm-hmm. regardless, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you're going to start, yeah? Yeah. So I want to I lead off, though, with a question for you, Katie. What is your relationship with holiday shopping? Uh, fraught, <laughs> procrastinating. Um, uh, I haven't gone to the mall in a good few years, mm-hmm. which has been a game changer. So I like to say it's like nice and relieving with like online shopping, but equally like hard. It's hard, man. Hard. It I'm is. also very far from my family. So like all those little context clues you pick up as you live close to people, I, I have to like come in be like i don't know but especially for like my niece and uh now nephew they're gonna like develop so fast that the thing i thought they would like probably not in vogue anymore by christmas time so do you do your some of your shopping like throughout the year as you like see cool things oh lord no no i just get december 1st happens i'm like i got time and then like two weeks happen you're like i only have two weeks left and you yeah i'm very ignorant of how the calendar works in uh december Mm -hmm. it probably doesn't (laughs) it's not a good time it's also a really busy yeah. time of the year for the theater industry. Um, yeah, you know, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> Last night was bizarre because I was running on fumes and it was one of those nights where you just get, like, slap happy. Mm-hmm. So I just, like, giggled. I, like, yeah, I was a mess. I was a mess. I tried to keep it to myself, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. What's your relationship with shopping, Michael? It's It seems very similar. So I, the past two... Yeah, the past two Christmases, I've been in Washington, D.C., working immediately prior to Christmas, and there are some really excellent bookstores there. So often I will just pick a day where I'm like, today's the day that I'm buying books for the family, and go to the bookstores and just walk around until I find things that are good. And that day is usually like 48 hours before I leave. (laughs) So always coming a little bit closer to the wire than I really intend to, because I'm always thinking like, oh... I'll shop throughout the year. If I see through cool things, I'll just like tuck it away somewhere and then just like have it available. Mm. And I never remember to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although now that I say those words out loud, 
I'm recalling that, in fact, on my summer contract in Montana this year, I did actually buy some presents in advance, and I've put them somewhere in my brother's bedroom for safekeeping. Yeah. I probably should go find those at some point. Yeah, ideally. I mean, you got some time to wrap, but um, you could do what my dad does and wait until I get home on Christmas Eve after flying all day. And then he's like, hey, will you help me wrap all my presents? (laughs) And I walk in, and there's like a mound of nonsense that I have to now wrap. And I'm like, yay, an errand. Mm -hmm. Merry Christmas to me. Yes. But, you know, it's fine. He wants them to look pretty, so I get it. Totally understandable. Um, yeah. We've yeah. sort of transitioned to, like, reusable wrapping paper, or at least, like, my mom's Ooh, that's presents good. are wrapped in, like, really pretty pieces of fabric that you just, like, tie around and then untie and can reuse the next year. Oh, that's smart. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Good idea. Super eco-friendly, and also it, like, makes it so much easier because you don't have to worry about, like, folding all your creases really perfectly. You just, like, yeah. tie a little knot, and it's good See, to go. my mom's got a great wrapping paper game, and there's always, like, <laughs> a theme so, like, she'll buy a whole color scheme for the year to, so they all look really nice under the tree. Which I'm not saying is a reason to, like, kill the planet, but it is always, like, a really nice picture. I will yes. say that. <laughs> but maybe fabric is the wave of the future. I think it I think it has the potential. Um, I know mm-hmm. my mom picked it up when she was in Japan because, like, they often, mm-hmm. like, wrap things, especially gifts and, like, really nice pieces of fabric. And so you can oh, go to, like, cool. Michael's or Joanne's and just, like, get scraps and then time up and they look really delightful yeah and you can get a whole bunch of like weird prints and colors and pretty stuff yeah make exactly. it look really festive oh that's cute you should try that yeah you should try that one year my copious spare time with all uh, of your free time yeah it's gonna be super easy okay Woo. <laughs> um, it's stressful right the holidays are stressful they are and when i was doing research for this episode trying to decide what i wanted to like talk about there's a whole world of literature about how the holidays are more stressful than women for women than they are for men surprise surprise um, women are like mothers specifically mothers but like women generally because there's that like obviously that conditioning of like well mom did all of these things for us growing up so therefore the expectation is generally that like the women in whatever sort of holiday context there are are generally the ones who end up doing the cooking and getting the gifts ready and decorating the house and like doing a lot of the like invisible labor that makes it possible for people to just like come home sit on the couch relax and then like have a holiday happen around them can i share a little a little treat with you yeah So, in my research, I was looking up all kinds of combinations of, like, Christmas and women and holidays and women tell me things about history. And um, one thing that I found is something called Little Christmas, which in Irish is an Irish word that I'm not going to say because I don't know it. I should learn Irish. It'd be fun. Um, But it happens on the Feast of the Epiphany, which is January 6th. If you don't know what the Feast of the Epiphany is, it's, uh, I believe it's uh, the holiday when the... Wise men make it to the baby Jesus. I think that's what happens. Um, Ooh, am I, I right? Really, I should really am know I wrong? that. I'm okay. Twelfth night. It's all that stuff. It's all that same stuff. Um, so it's usually at the end of the Christmas season. Is that day? And so in Ireland, uh, there's a tradition in specifically Cork and Kerry, which I've been to. Now I can say that. Um, <laughs> and it's called. Uh, Little Christmas or Women's Christmas, and it comes out of this um, tradition of it's uh, the day that the Irish men 
take over the household duties so women can have a break. Um, Specifically, like, a Mother's Day vibe. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, Like, early January. And it's a Catholic country, so you would probably have this feast day off. I think it's on... Yeah. Yeah, early January. It's it's a holiday, so you'd have to go to church and all that stuff. But um, some women hold parties and celebrate with their other women groups, so it's a chance for women to get together, and then the men have to take care of the kids. You know, do all of the traditional, like, homely duties that would have made sense in our country about 50 years ago because there's a little more clear division of gender norms and all that stuff. So I don't know what happens now, but there is it probably some version of it. It's just an excuse to do like another Mother's Day sort of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, it's not specifically mothers for this particular... It's like any woman in your house. So your mm-hmm. mom, your aunt, your sister. And so, yeah, they go to parties. And <laughs> as a result, parties of women and girls are common in bars and restaurants on this night. <laughs> Children sometimes buy presents for their mothers and grandmothers. So, yes, I thought that was a sweet thing. And maybe a nice balm to the stress that we as women, we as women have at the holidays. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Just pick up a little Irish tradition. Um, Yeah. And so, and I mean, so the reason I sort of ask, um, I think, don't know if we've explained to the people what we're sort of thinking about for this episode but we wanted to do something fun for the holidays where we sort of looked at these like smaller little stories that might not qualify for a full episode but about like how women are related in some way to like the holiday spirit or the way that a particular holiday is celebrated um and so i was kind of interested in like why do we go christmas shopping partially because Mm. it's like an experience that always produces a lot of stress and i'm like holidays shouldn't be stressful and this is always stressful but the thought of like giving gifts to people you love is like a particularly nice expression of like I care for you and I pay attention enough to you to like think you'll enjoy this um but of course like gift giving hasn't always been a thing associated with Christmas in fact as much as far as I can tell it's a really recent Christmas tradition um at least in the United States it doesn't really take hold as like a widespread thing until the middle of the 19th century um because prior to that, especially in the Americas, Christmas isn't really a huge holiday, which I found really surprising because obviously now it is like the big Christian holiday and everyone is like Christmas all the time. The Christmas music season keeps extending further and further. I think we're going to get to Halloween pretty soon. We can talk about my feelings about Christmas music at a later date because I don't want to alienate every single listener um, including your partner here, because Christmas music is the best. But keep going. <laughs> yeah. The holly and the ivy makes me cry every year. Mm-hmm. I just don't think, I think, are you talking about, like, Mariah Carey nonsense? Or are you talking, like, wham? Or are you talking, like, the heartfelt? I think I'm not opposed know? to Christmas music as a genre. Like, I love a good Christmas carol. I'm super happy to listen to, like, the full spectrum of Christmas music. I just, I want to be able to turn the radio on at some point after Thanksgiving without having to listen to it nonstop. Like, the fact that NPR, man. I mean, that's the thing. I've been listening to a lot of NPR as I've been driving because it is basically the only station left not playing Christmas music. Like, even the, like, classical music station in D.C. that just plays classical music all the time has been playing, like, Christmas cantatas. 
Which again, yeah, but that sleigh ride is to. so good. That orchestrated sleigh ride with the jingle bells and the horse whip crack. Oh, it it is. That's the best. Uh, uh, Pablo and I talked about it the other day, and he was like, "That's the best orchestration of a Christmas mu- mu- um, song I've ever heard." And I have to concur. It's it's so good. Yeah, so festive. But I hear you. When you're inundated against your will, it's not great. I don't ever listen to the radio in my car. I'm usually like plug my phone in and listen to iTunes or um, mm-hmm. stuff I have. So I get it. I get it. NPR is always there for you, though. It is. NPR Support is Support your local there. NPR station. They're pretty great. Um, so. So we started shopping in the 1800s? In the 1800s, in the 1800, specifically in the 1830s. Mm. And this is something that I found and was like, both surprised and not surprised is that like the Victorians are kind of the ones who we blame and or thank, depending on how you want to think about it for most modern sort of like mainstream American Christmas traditions. They all sort of pop up in this Victorian period. Because of, because of Queen Victoria, right? Mostly because of Queen Victoria. And we're going to get to how Queen Mm -hmm. Victoria may or may not be responsible for the Christmas tree in a second here. Um, But first Christmas shopping. So it comes around Mm. in the 1830s, um, primarily, and this is what really surprised me, because of the abolitionist movement. So, like, stick with me here for a second. Oh, 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 I know where you're going. I think I know where you're going. Keep going. Okay. Okay. Um, So in the 1830s, sort of organized, formalized abolitionism was really growing in the U.S., Um, and in particular, this is a moment where... Um, large-scale anti-slavery societies are starting to be founded. Um, and in the 18, in 1834, members of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society begin organizing Christmas bazaars or, like, Christmas fairs to use as a fundraising tool. So they'd, like, set up in the town center, they'd have booths, there'd be music, there'd be sort of, like, festive things, and there'd be things to buy. And all of that money would go to supporting the abolitionist movement. Um, And this is sort of the first time that shopping in any way is really tied to the Christmas season. Prior to that, if you were going to do gifts for the holidays, which was not a common thing, they'd be like handmade or you'd go like to a small artisan shop to get something. But these are these sort of like mass produced early commercialized gifts that are sort of put out in these tents, very much like what you'd think of like sort of a Christmas fair on a street um, in the city today. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's sort of this dual thing of we're raising money, but we're also commercializing Christmas um, and using it as a tool to try to educate people about abolitionism and about slavery. Um, So in Boston, for example, the Christmas Bazaar regularly hosted like an interracial children's choir, which for the 1830s is sort of like one of these like groundbreakingly radical things to do is like let people sing together regardless of the color of their skin. Um, and really quickly, like these things take off by the end of the 1830s. They're basically the major source of funding for most abolitionist groups. Um, and it really becomes tied to it. And the thing for this podcast that was so central is like, this is women doing this. Like when we Mm -hmm. sort of think about abolitionism, the big, a lot of the big speakers, a lot of the like big names, especially in the earlier period are men because as we've talked at length about the podcast, the whole slew of historiographical challenges about, like, men being the ones to remember Whoa. doing things. Um, big word. Yeah. It's too early in the morning. Big word for, for big 10 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> um, but obviously the women are doing a huge amount of the work 
for these societies and in particular the christmas bazaars are the things that they really take and run with and because of all of the funding that comes from it in a way like these women are single-handedly wouldn't quite be the right way to put it but like the women are doing so much of the work of like getting the money to make the other things possible um and in a way it lets them sort of reappropriate their domestic labor to a social cause because they would be doing like decorating and baking and all of the things that one does for the holidays for the family anyway but the ability to do that and sort of channel it for this social justice movement I think was also like a really powerful way of feeling like you're able to be involved and to do something really important and connect that to the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis that might not always necessarily feel super fulfilling in every single moment um and so that was super fascinating and then there's this whole rabbit hole of like things abolitionists did that like have stuck around as parts of modern Christmas without the like original context of them um and in particular they basically tried to turn Christmas into an anti-slavery tool like writ large so the thing about like giving gifts to children um isn't really a huge part of Christmas prior to the the 1830s but the abolitionists are trying to make a point because a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the South about the necessity of slavery is this very, like, patriarchal, like, slaves are like children, and therefore we need to, like, do what we're doing for them, which, of course, is... Treat them like people? And and that's actually the exact argument the abolitionists are making, is, like, what we care and respect about children, and, like, we give them gifts, and, like, Christmas is in many ways a holiday about celebrating children. Um, So, like, if we're doing that why is it that you're not treating these other people like people? And so trying to use it as, like, a public relations tool of being like, hey, this is a thing that, like, we need to be able to, like, treat everyone as people. Um, And in that spirit, they also sort of reappropriate the switch, so, like, short branches that um, parents would use to discipline or beat their children, um, but that, of course, is also sort of a symbol. The good old days, am I right? <laughs> Back in the day where, like, that was a common enough symbol. Um, <laughs> and so the, the one of the many reasons that, like, Evergreen shows up as a symbol for Christmas is that the abolitionists would take these, like, evergreen branches that were meant to sort of evoke the, like, violence of beating children or slaves with these switches and like put them in people's houses and it's sort of like both festive but also like a reminder of the violence that the slave system is built on um oh wow and so people would sort of that's dark right this is this is the thing i'm like wow a lot of this is like it is dark but also ultimately redeeming because like a lot of the work that they're doing does end up having at least like a bit of a positive Mm. result in like pushing the u.s to like reconsider the like investment in the slave system um and at least in the northern parts of the country people really buy into this idea of like christmas as a holiday not only for celebrating like the birth of jesus but also as a moment to like reflect upon why slavery is awful and like reinvest in sort of doing the work to end it um which i thought was like if you're going to commercialize a holiday it seems like a really great way to commercialize it like that it is ultimately from, like, a very 
deeply moral impulse. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's so, amazing. So the reason we are all stressed about Christmas shopping is because at some point in the 1830s, they were like, this is a good way to fundraise and promote the abolitionist cause. Nailed it. Yeah. I mean, if, I love that. If we're going to have to be stressed, cool. we might as well be stressed for a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, oh, that's dark. Oh, God. Okay. So, wait, that's 1830s? 1830s. Mm, okay. Um, okay. So, not not even quite a full two centuries of Christmas shopping, but yet it is something that is, like, very much a tradition now. Well, I think there's also a tie-in, too, of just, like, the whole um, development of a middle class in the Industrial Revolution, so that there was commerce to be had at the middle level for people. And when you're in the middle, you want to behave like the rich. And what do the rich do? They spend money and like, you know what I mean? Like before that, you were poor or super wealthy. And so not exclusively. I mean, there's stuff. But, you know, the rise of like a merchant middle class or the, uh, yeah, you know, that kind of coincides all together. And then also you have this emblem of Victorian Albert at the top who promote this like very distinct still present today in our society of like the home life and like what it means to be a family and all of that stuff. So everyone's trying to model them and then we're still kind of dealing with the ramifications of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, This perfect family that was in charge and ruled the world for like the entire century. So, So, you know, totally a reasonable thing to model like everyday life after. Yeah. You know, people who live in palaces that's who you want to be like. Um, cool. So this is my non-denominational beautiful story. So my story is about a particular woman. Uh, it's going to be short and sweet. Her name is Ruth Graves. Uh, at the time of her birth, with, which was June 17th, 1903. In a town in Massachusetts that I'm going to say is East Walpole. W-A-L-P-O-L-E. I'm sure it's wrong. Because (laughs) Because most things are wrong. Every town in Massachusetts is not pronounced the way it should be. Yeah, you like see that consonant in the middle? Don't say it. Yeah. The Massachusetts brand. Um, Her dad is Fred. Her mom is Helen. She's raised in Easton, Massachusetts and attended uh, the Framingham State Normal School (laughs) Department of Household Arts. Once again, Framingham State Normal School. Normal. What? Department of Household Arts. It's now called Framingham State University. Um, She graduates in 1924, and she taught home economics at Brockton High School. And uh, she she lectures on food and and helps, you know, with dietary stuff. She does some odd jobs. In 1926, she marries Kenneth Wakefield. And uh, he he works in the meatpacking industry, but they don't really like it. So a few years into their marriage, they're like, let's get out of this and let's go do what we want to do, which is bit, uh, let's go open an inn on uh, Bedford Street in Whitman. How romantic. Oh, what should we call what should we call our inn, babe? I don't know, babe. What should we call it? They're going to call each other, babe. I don't know. What should we call it? And she goes, mm, let's call it the Toll House Inn. And he's like, great name, babe. Let's do it. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. Oh, boy. So this, this is going to come with acting and voices. Don't get ahead of me. 
Don't get ahead of me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it gets up to like 60 tables in the inn because her food is amazing. And she cooks she cooks all the food, including um, lobster dishes because mm, we're close to Boston. Uh, Boston cream and lemon meringue pies. Um, all these fancy, terrible recipes from the 30s and 40s, which like take a look at Julia Child's book on aspics. It's pretty terrible. So I'm sure there was like some stuff that wasn't great. How about this? Sea foam salad ring. With lime gelatin. Ugh. <gasps> oh, no. No wonder people didn't live past 50. Okay, so she's killing it. She's doing great. She publishes a cookbook in 1931 because her inn is so popular. Also, like, as cars become, like, more common for, like, family to have, as you travel through, you're going to stop at this little mom-and-pop shop and have a meal, right? So she, uh, she writes, Ruth Wakefield's Tried and True Recipes... And uh, legend has it. <laughs> oh, legend and now. Legend has it that um, once upon a time, as she was trying to figure out how to modify this butterscotch nut cookie that she made with serving with ice cream. You're welcome, everyone, for really wanting to be hungry right now. Um, it was very popular in the dish, but she was like, mm, I don't know. We got to do something different. Uh, maybe if I make it like chocolate butterscotch. So I'm going to put some chocolate in the dough and like mix it all together. So she didn't have time to like let's let me let me let me back up. So you have baker's chocolate, right, which is like unsweetened and mm-hmm. it's a square and you have to like melt it down to put it into things. Yes. You can. That's one version of what you do do. Um and it's very unsweetened, it's very bitter um because you're usually putting it into a recipe that has a lot of sugar in it. So she was she didn't have her normal stuff, but she did have Nestle semi-sweet chocolate and she didn't have time to like melt it down to put in the batter that she was making so she like takes an ice pick and she smashes the chocolate she takes up an ice like, pick I, i'm assuming an ice pick that's what one article said legend I mean, has it let's just legend a, a, what else would you use a knife i don't know i guess i mean she, that's you would have an ice pick back then because you would have an ice box because refrigerators are anything so you'd have a pick i'm with you now um because you would have an, yeah, you know, I Love Lucy icebox kind of stuff. Um, no, it's even before that. It's the 30s. So she's making like a regular cookie batter. She's like, oh, crap, I don't have time to melt this chocolate down to make a chocolate batter with this. So I'm going to just smash up this bar into little chunks and put it in. And when I bake it, the chocolate will melt like I want it to and it'll be fine. It'll be like I, I'm, I'm cutting a corner like all... Like all great American innovations. Uh, like, yeah, like all good invention is, right? And she puts it in the brown sugar dough with some nuts. And she pulls it out. And it's this cookie that has these chocolate chips in it. And she's like, oh, I, I'm going to serve them. Let's see what they do. And they're great. Everyone loves them. She clearly, like, has a new favorite item on her, uh, on her menu. So... Uh, she reproduce. Uh, she reprints her cookbook. She includes the recipe in there later. Um, her Toll House cookie recipe is reprinted in the Boston Herald Traveler, and it's uh, the Wakefield Inn is featured on um, a radio program uh, hosted by Marjorie Husted, who is also known as Betty Crocker, which is a big lie. No, there is no such thing as Betty Crocker, but uh, they did like a program as if she were hosting it, mm-hmm. and so she. 
featured on there on radio in the 30s, which is the most popular form of media. So it sort of takes off. And Nestle is the hero of the story. So they come calling in 1939 to the Toll House Inn and they're like, hey, we would love the rights to this recipe to put on all of our packages. Can we please? And um, they, they sweet talked her, pun intended. And apparently, mm-hmm. legend has it, she was only paid a dollar, but was hired to consult on recipes for them. Okay. So there's also some facts that say, like, they gave her chocolate for the rest of her life, which that's a good win, right? Um, I have to pick. I might actually take the chocolate. I know. So because of her, quite honestly, they start taking their bars of semi-sweet chocolate and, like, putting scores into them so you can break them apart easier. But then they even go a further step and they start to produce semi-sweet chocolate morsels, which became known as chocolate chips. Oh, interesting. So before it would only come in just, like, a big chunk or big bar. Yeah, a genuinely big bar. And that's all you had to cook with. And you buy, like, a bar at a time, which they still make. Mm-hmm. Baker's chocolate and stuff like that. Um, so there was no such thing as, like, tiny little morsels or chips, for that matter. Until this recipe kind of hit the hit the uh, culture. And um, her, re- her original recipe is printed on the package. It was later updated to account for... Um, the modernization of flour and other ingredients that developed over time. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, when she added the recipe to her cookbook, she included this note. At Toll House, we chill this dough overnight. When ready for baking, we roll a teaspoon of dough between palms of hands and place balls two inches apart on a greased baking sheet. Then we press them with our fingertips to form flat rounds. This way, cookies do not spread as much in the baking and they keep uniformly round, which is not on the back of the Toll House cookie. <laughs> I, I know for a fact. So anyway... There's a little hint from Miss Wakefield from the 30s, you guys. Give it a try on your next batch. Um, the recipe is super popular, and now that it's easier for uh, people to make with the chips, they become so uh, fused with not only New England, but um, America. And there's a really sweet story that the soldiers during World War II, when they're stationed away from home, that they sh- the soldiers from Massachusetts shared their care packages with kids from Texas and Kansas and all over. And so the soldiers not from the New England area write home and they're like, oh, please, will you send me these cookies? And so their popularity takes another like crazy drastic uptick because these poor little kids are far away from home and all they want is a cookie from their mom. So Aww. it becomes even more like, oh, Hallmark movie of sweetness. Literally, it's so cute. Um in 1983, a federal judge ruled that Nestle, uh, which sold, which sells about 90 billion individual morsels annually, isn't is no longer entitled to exclusive rights to the Toll House trademark. Um, and going back a little bit, in 1967, the Wakefields sold their inn, and the couple retired. She uh, she and Kenneth retire. They have a son, Kenneth. Uh, oh, yeah, they have a son, Kenneth Jr., there you go, and a daughter, Mary Jane, which is so cute. And unfortunately, the inn does not survive to this day, but there is a historical marker where it was. Um, so that's why you see to this day a little Nestle Toll House cookie on the back because of the Toll House Inn and Ruth Wakefield and her 
can you just imagine? She's got two kids. She's like, I gotta make these cookies for tonight. And she just like whacks on a piece of chocolate, throws it in her batter, and everybody just loves it. It's, uh, yeah. I love that kind of story. But anyway, I know that cookies are a big thing about the holidays. It's not particularly a Christmas cookie, the chocolate chip, but at the same time, everybody likes a chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. And uh, what's warm and fuzzy? I, th- I don't know if your family does this, but like, um, I know my friend Sarah is doing a cookie bake this weekend. Uh, my family is currently making Christmas stuff, Christmas cookies and treats today. Mm-hmm. Part of the holiday is the sweet confections that we all partake in yeah. and cause a reason for a um, New Year's resolution. Yeah. So. <laughs> Ruth yeah, Wakefield. Do... I'm going to just like, can we hold for a second? I'll be back in 45 minutes because I need to go make some chocolate chip cookies now. <laughs> You do. Remember to, like, squish them down yeah. after you freeze them overnight, which that's... I've never done that either, but roll them in, and then you pat them down a little bit, and apparently that's her little her little secret. Interesting. So there you go. I know. There we go. I know. I do want some right now, too. Yeah. I think... It, yeah, because we do... We generally do sugar cookies are the big ones. Yeah. Um, For around the holidays, but my brother did a batch of thanksgiving chocolate chip cookies not that there's something particularly traditional about like chocolate chip cookies for thanksgiving but it was the kind of thing where like we had the pies we had all the other things but like the cookies went first because they were just like love it excellent yeah he does the toll house recipe but with molasses because one day there was not brown sugar to be had um yeah and molasses actually is like i would 10 out of 10 recommend it oh nice yeah i bet it does something Flavor-wise, yeah, you get like a different. nice sort of gooey. It helps with the gooiness of your cookie, and the flavor is a little bit. It's a little less sweet, which I'm nice. a big fan of. I've got one more sort of traditional. It's not quite a traditional thanks or Christmas takedown, but it's like. Uh huh. So like this whole Christmas tree thing, right? It's like think about it for a moment this like deeply pagan thing that we've suddenly made a big christmas thing um so i love pagan i love pagan's a heated term it's an accurate term it is it's totally no it's totally is yeah um yeah but i i have to admit i love decorating the christmas tree like it is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things um and my family has a very hard and fast rule the tree does not go up and it does not get decorated until christmas eve um, Whoa. So we, we go Revolutionary. really late because I know a lot of people like some people it goes up like the day after Thanksgiving. We, yeah, the the idea being that like people are generally home by Christmas Eve, so it's like very much a family mm-hmm. event that is done together. Like pull the boxes out of the basement, get the tree like set up in the back room, get it all together. Mm-hmm. That's when the the like ham family is allowed to start listening to like Christmas carols in the house. Because my mom has mm. thoughts about listening to them in the house prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, like, we decorate it. The cat inevitably tries to knock it over. It's a whole thing. Um, That's a good use of that day, though. I, I mean, like, typically right. people have Christmas Eve off. So it gives the family a big whole thing to do. So it's kind of nice in that way. Yeah. The same reason that people put it up after Thanksgiving. You have everybody there. Exactly. Is the way that we always... I mean, especially when I was in college, I would have that weekend to get back to school so we would always put it up before i left so then you can still participate yeah in the thing 
Um, it's also just really nice to look at all December. But, you know, every family's different. Exactly. So and so, I like... And ours will often stay up very late through January. Like, we'll often mm. pick, like, the last day that the township is... will, like, throw out Christmas trees. The day before yeah. it will come down. Yeah. Um, which also really worked out it. great for me when I was in college, because it meant I was always gone. And I don't like taking the Christmas tree down. Putting it up is really fun. Yeah. Having to take all it's of the It's almost like off you guys not. probably have the right idea because um, right now we kind of, uh, in my experience at Christmas, we front load it. Like it's always like the month of December is Christmas. And then once it's New Year's, we're done with that whole holiday vibe. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it be nice, not necessarily to have two months of Christmas because I think that's a little much. But to like carry it through a little bit more into the bleak month of January that inevitably exists. Yes. You know? It's just always kind of like such a high and then it kind of drops off after the new year and you sort of are in winter. It's cold. It's still dark. You don't have all twinkly lights hanging around anymore. But yeah, for every, for every week we add in January, I have to take one away from December. I think is how it should do. Yeah. So maybe there's a balance of like two weeks prior and two weeks post something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's make a pitch. Like we'll solve Christmas in that. Like, yeah, we want to like, balance it out for everyone yeah Um, yeah i think so yeah do you think do you think um our our uh capitalist economy would would support us on that hmm that's that's rhetorical that's 100 percent no yeah they super love we gotta move on to our next Um, we got our next holiday to do i know okay um, anyway, trees. Trees. So trees are great. They're definitely like a solid part of like mainstream American Christmas celebrating, but they haven't always mm-hmm. been. Um, as alluded to earlier with the pagan comet, they come from sort of like a long tradition of like European paganism that then gets folded into like particularly Germanic Woo-hoo. Christmas celebrations. Um, and by mm-hmm. the like be- early American years, the late 17, early 1800s, it's very much a German thing. So, like, German immigrants in Pennsylvania will put up trees. Um, That's my family. Woot, woot. Um, but most other Americans' trees are not part of their Christmas celebration. Um, and again, sort of mid-19th century, 1830s, 1840s, mm-hmm. 1850s, um, the tree starts to spread. And there's a lot of possible explanations from it. It's definitely one of those things where it's a whole host of reasons why the tree becomes this like central symbol of Christmas. Um, but there are sort of two stories that I found that involve women really centrally. So those are the two that I want to talk about really briefly. Um, one is sort of tied to abolitionism. So I'm going to start with that one. Um, in the 1830s, there's a German immigrant named Charles Follen who is an abolitionist and who is the first professor of German at Harvard. Um, He's going to get fired in a couple of years for being too outspoken against slavery from Harvard. Because, like, things we should remember, Harvard used to fire people who were abolitionists. Just going to throw that out there. Just going to, like, tuck that in. Whoa. Um, Gauntlets thrown. Sorry, Harvard. Um, But so as a... graduate from Harvard, though, Barack Obama. mm, Keep going. Maybe they're redeeming themselves. They've they've learned a little bit. Uh, So he puts a Christmas tree up in his home every year, um, and in either 1832 or 1835, it's a little unclear, um, Harriet Martineau, who is a popular British author at the time, visits his home, sees the tree, and is so taken with it that in one of her subsequent novels, 
she writes like this rather beautiful little vignette about the tree that I'm going to read just a little bit of. Um, she writes, it really looked beautiful. The room seemed in a blaze and the ornaments were so well hung that no accident happened, except that one doll's petticoat caught fire. There was a sponge <laughs> tied to the end of a stick to put out any supernumerary blaze and no harm ensued. I mounted the steps behind the tree to see the effect of opening the doors. It was delightful. The children poured in, but in a moment every voice was hushed. Their faces were upturned to the blaze, all eyes wide open, all lips parted, all steps arrested. Um, That's really sweet. Yeah. Um, we can take a quick moment to be like, remember when we put candles on trees and just like lit I know, we really were drunk those things? for most of that for most of that century, everyone was drunk is the other thing I'd like to think about. Just no one's sober for most of humanity's life. Yeah. So planet. you have it, drunk um, people running around a tree with live candles yeah. on it. And also these like fun, frilly dolls and lace and other things that are just fire hazards. It's a giant fire hazard in the middle of your home. Yeah, but you water it, and you're fine. I mean, you wouldn't keep them lit all the time, right? No. I mean, I'm sure people did, but you'd, you'd put them out and light mm-hmm. them again. And yeah, and you'd, you'd probably only have it in your house, like, your family, like, the day before. And um, and you'd have your little sponge tied to a stick, apparently, to put out any I love that. <laughs> Just to, like, bat the fire down. No, 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 no. Yeah. Oh, and coupled with the fact that everybody has long crazy hair and long long petticoats full of skirt so you wouldn't feel your butt burning right away mm-hmm. because you, you'd have to get that outer layer oh yeah so that i'm kind of amazed that at a period where you're basically just putting a giant fire hazard in your home for a couple of days or a couple of weeks that like it gets so popular like i could just see it being like oh don't and, I, and that you kind of get it in this quote like a big part of this is like oh don't worry about it like sure it might seem mm-hmm. like a fire hazard but you just have the sponge you just pay a little bit of attention and it won't like burn your house down and it's also beautiful yeah. so um so i thought that wow. that was just like hysterically funny oh avant-garde kind of art you know exactly um and it's also interesting yeah. that like the light is such a central part of it like I, at least yeah. for me, I sort of think, like, when you're thinking of, like, Christmas trees now, like, the Christmas lights are a big part of it, but so are the ornaments and, like, the other things you put on yeah. it that have more of a sentimental value, maybe. Um, but it seems like at but this point... But is it not, like, the best part of Christmas Eve is all the lights are out except your Christmas tree in your window? Yeah, that is very true. You know? And, like, the glow it gives off. Like, the lights are still kind of... Also the thing that captivates you when you're little. Yeah. No, definitely. you never see a tree with lights on it, so you're like, oh... Yeah. And um, it's the darkest time of the year. It's all that stuff. Yeah. And it's, you know, yeah, light is a obviously a big theme around the holidays. Um, I just worked mm-hmm. a um, Christmas tree lighting ceremony um, when I was in D.C. and got to put, like, big fancy theatrical lights underneath a tree. And so when you, like, mm. flip the switch to turn the lights on, the, like, Christmas lights on the tree come on. But then these giant um, LED lights underneath, like, shoot straight up so the tree looks like it's glowing from the inside. It was really cool. It was a proud moment for me. Um, That's cool. Do you have any pictures of it? um, I have some pictures that look really bad because my phone doesn't do well with low light. But I'll see if I can get some, like, nice ones from the the official event photos. And we can can throw some up on the Instagram. Oh, I'd love to see it. Um, Sounds cool. Yeah. So that's version number one. Version number two, Mm -hmm. going back to your comment 
about Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. The dream team. The dream team. So Prince Mm -hmm. Albert is German. Um, Mm -hmm. and the, the very German German. and the English Royal family Mm -hmm. at this point is actually also like comes from like long German roots. They're still German. (laughs) Yep. We just don't like to talk about it anymore. Um, and so when he marries Victoria, um, they start really celebrating a very German Christmas and a central part of that German Mm -hmm. Christmas is the Christmas tree. Um, and Mm -hmm. that makes its way to the U S in 1850 when a popular ladies magazine called goodies ladies book um which is a title um my eyes are rolling for everybody (laughs) listening keep going um when that magazine um includes a print of queen victoria and her family around a christmas tree um and that is sort of credited as one of these other great moments of like popularizing the tree as an ideal because it's this it's this mm-hmm. really idealized version of like this happy family together in a room around this tree sort of this picture of yeah. familial bliss um yeah I- interesting to note that the it's a version of a print that appears in british publications a few years earlier um and obviously in the british publications they have their crowns and they're like royal accoutrement but in the american version they're much more stripped down and they, they like could be like a very classy middle-class family. Like there's no Mm. external signs that they are royalty, but at the same time, everyone knows it's Queen Victoria and they're like, she's doing it. So we want to do it. Um, Mm. And so, and so in sort of looking into this, the woman responsible for including this in the magazine and thus for like making, you know, a big impression on the American psyche around Christmas is a woman named Sarah Josepha Buell Hale gotta love those like 19th mm-hmm. century protestants with the four names um mm, who yeah. is interestingly also the woman who wrote mary had a little lamb so she's out oh. there she's making an impression on the culture um <laughs> yeah and so she is in many ways like responsible what a, what for a rockin tune mary had a little lamb is yeah. um and it's, it's fascinating we all know it. she is actually in a way like a huge tastemaker so mary had a little lamb I don't think you can beat that. Like, that is, like, a central piece mm-hmm. of Americana. But she's mm-hmm. also one of the first um, editors of these women's magazines that are becoming a thing in the 19th she's, century, who is actually she, a woman. She's the Anna Wintour of 1800s. <laughs> a- she actually really is. Like, when oh she's editing um, Goody's Ladies book, which, again, awful mm-hmm. title, but from basically from the mid 1830s through the 1870s it is the women's magazine in the u.s like there is really no competition for it and so the things that she puts in that magazine really do sort of make a huge imprint on american culture in a way that no other publication at this point really can because it doesn't have Mm -hmm. a national reach um it's one of the only magazines that is sort of distributed broadly in the north and the south because and this is not great. It like doesn't take a position on slavery. It doesn't really like make any commentary about that. And that's sort of a business decision from mm-hmm. there. And that lets them sell to both audiences. Um, hmm. But so she is in addition to like writing Mary had a little lamb and popularizing the Christmas tree um, also sort of raises up like a huge number of female poets and writers at this period. Cause she'll publish them in the magazine, give them sort of a voice um, in addition to like some famous men, but the like the women I think is more important um, and one of those contributors is Frances 
Hodgson Burnett, who wrote The Secret Garden. Oh, The um, Secret Garden. And so she's really just, like, pulling from all of these areas and really kind of making a lot of what we think of as, like, 19th century American culture is in many ways yep. tied to her editorial voice at this magazine. Um, mm-hmm. And she's, like, so successful. And again, not to credit one person for the tree. A lot of people are involved in the tree. Um, but yep. by the end of the 1900s, there is one Christmas tree for every five Americans, which is a lot of Christmas trees. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. And so it's really, wow. by the end of the 19th century, we are at this point where, like, Christmas looks very similar to what Christmas is going to look like now. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, I love that, too, because, um, not to be, I don't, I'm not going to make this a downer, but I find it very fascinating that I think even you and I deal with this in terms of, like, German heritage, uh, and dealing with German heritage has been particularly fraught for people born after 1950 because all of their parents and grandparents don't want to talk about how they're German, including the Queen of England mm-hmm. right now, because her grandfather changed their name to Windsor in the First World War so that they weren't German anymore. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. they picked a very English mm-hmm. name after one of their palaces, and they're like, we're Windsor now, don't worry about it. We're as English as... Clotted cream and scones. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> but I think it, it affects a lot of people. So even like when we talk about Christmas trees, we say vaguely like, oh, it's a Germanic tradition, but it's not tied into like the German immigrant experience in the same way that mm. if uh, certain events in the early half of the 20th century were different, maybe everyone would be a little more um, impassioned of their German heritage. But Yeah. I mean, I'm equal parts. I'm, I'm sure a big genetic component of me is German. But whenever we talk about our heritage, we're like, oh, we're Welsh and Irish because that's the classy one and they're the underdogs Yeah. of this story of history. Whereas, like, German and English, nobody wants to be that. <laughs> <laughs> nobody fair. wants to be that because you basically, like, colonized the world or kind of blew it up for a little while. And we're still kind of dealing with all of that. Yeah, but no, I think that's a that's a really there's good, point. good things too, and it's case in point, like Christmas trees. Yeah, and you don't need to have a real one; you can have a really nice artificial. I'm not going to fault anybody on that. They do good for the planet in different ways. Definitely. Um, but I, yeah, there's something really romantic about Germany too, and like they're all drunk putting a candle on their trees. So they're pretty fun people, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think I think the Germans have sort of figured out Christmas in a way that like not every other sort of national tradition has i was really lucky to be in germany for like a week before christmas when i was studying abroad and just would like Mm -hmm. go to christmas markets and get some like mulled wine and some sausages and some fried dough and it was amazing their food is american (laughs) i mean we love their food and if we ate more of it we'd probably be worse off but it's delicious what else do they do beer they do beer like nobody else oh my god yeah, they've got some good stuff. Every culture has something good and something bad about it. So exactly, it's nice to to celebrate yeah, the, the good. good or I would say the parts that you and I like about Christmas are very German. And it's just nice to say that. Yeah, it is. We should um, investigate our German heritage just as much as everywhere else. You know, exactly. Um, just to be fair and open. Yeah. So I'm sure there's like many more stories about the Christmas tree and the way it's adopted. But I liked those because they're mm. like very much like. Women thought this was cool. They made it yeah. a thing. Everyone else was like, yes, this is cool. Let's put these fiery death traps in our homes. 
But look how pretty they are. They're so pretty. And that makes it okay. So pretty and inconvenient and pretty. Merry Christmas. <laughs> no, I love it. I mean, it's like something else. I think the reason Hanukkah is so... Uh, they're all lights as well. Do you know what I mean? There's something about light in the wintertime. Yeah. Just makes sense. It does Great. Mean. I love that. Also, um, I read somewhere in, in researching as well that... Do you remember uh, Artemisia episode? I do indeed. Um, she did that crazy painting of Judith. Mm-hmm. Is there not is there not a tie with Judith and Hanukkah in some way? I read somewhere that she's the reason we eat. Uh, oh God, <laughs> I'm such a shiksa. Um, <laughs> uh, is it cheese latkes? I don't know. Hold on, hold on. I gotta look it up now. Yep. Now we're. Um, yeah. Sorry, Jen. We're the worst. Judith, Judith, and the Hanukkah story. Ugh, we'll have to do it on another episode. Yeah, but I think it would be, it looks like it, there's definitely some interesting tie-ins and some, like, weird gender things yeah. about, like, why it stopped being a yeah. part of it. Yeah. Anyway, Jen, you can include that part about Judith or not. We can save it for another time. Okay, great. Well, happy holidays, Michael. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays, everybody. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.